Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Last week we spent a lot of time on this on this word pakad, pei kuf dalid, which uh, has to do with counting. It has we said it has to do with noting, noticing, uh, in a good way, and. So we're going to get another census here to begin our study of Parshat Naso, Numbers 421. We're going to get another census, and I'll talk to you in a minute about what that census is. But we're going to pay attention this week to the word for counting again, because we're going to see it all over this Parsha used in different ways, and even in a way that you're familiar with, even though you don't know that you're familiar with it. Uh, and so the Shoresh this time is going to be Nun, uh, Sin, Aleph. Okay? So we're going to pay attention to where we see this Shoresh show up. And the first place we're going to see it is in the first Pasuk of our Parsha. How do you render an Aleph in English? But if so if it takes a different vowel, <laughs> this is interesting. I don't think I've ever in twenty years done this. Um, okay, so we're gonna just do Aleph. <laughs> Aleph is silent. Aleph is a silent letter. So, so there's it takes whatever vowel goes with it, right? An H though has for us. Uh, huh sound, right? We can start Harry, Harold, right? Hair raising. Um, we can start with an H because it has a sound. An Aleph does not have a sound. So uh, Nun, Sin, Aleph is going to be our shorish that we're dealing with this morning. Let's Let's see how it comes about. So we're in the middle of a uh, census here. We are getting a census of each of the clans. It begins at the beginning of chapter 4. So the rabbis ask, why does the new Parsha begin here? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. The beginning of chapter 4, we get a census of the Kohatites, which is a clan of Levites. It is a family of Levites. Then we're, we get, and, and it says what their job is going to be. And we're getting only the counting of those 30 years to 50 years. Because from 30 years to 50 years was their age of service to the Mishkan. The Kohatites are going to uh, take down and the Aaron and his sons, because only they're allowed into the sacred space, remember? They take down the curtain, the parochet, and the and they'll cover the ark, the aron, and then the Kohatites will do the porterage. They will carry the ark. And then we get the same thing we get accounting of, so we need to know how many of those folks there are. And then we get uh, accounting here at 21 of the Gershonites. So we counted Kahat, the folks of Kahat, so we know how many there are to do that porterage, that sacred porterage. And now we're going to get a census of the Gershonites because they have a certain um, job to do also. And we need to know how many of them there are. Uh, remember that 
What is Moshe's son's name? Gershon. Right, so very possibly these are right early within ancient Israel. The Mushites, the Aaronid clans, the Gershonites, right? These are the early folk. Wasn't it the first census of warriors, people who could fight? Correct. Okay. Yes. And if somebody has a name like Gershon now, we have somebody in our congregation, does that mean they're descendant or is it in honor of? Generally, generally no. Um, it's just it's a common name. Gershon is a very common name. There's no way to trace that far back anymore. Because we don't know what we, what we would trace it back to. Right. I mean, they've done it with Kohanim, and they, there's a claim that they are genetically more similar to one another than they are to the general Jewish population. So some people want to claim, so that is tracing it back to... There's a genetic, there's a genetic component, right? But where you would trace Gershon back to, like, yeah. you know, it would be hard to, to figure anything near, like, what that would mean. All right, so let's start at 21. Adonai spoke to Moses, take census of the Gershonites also by their ancestral house and by the clans. Record them from the age of 30 up to 50, all who were subject to service in the performance of tasks for the tent of meeting. These are the duties of the Gershonite clans as to labor and porridge. They shall carry the claws of the tabernacle, the tent of the meeting with its covering, the covering of dolphin skin that is on top of it, and the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting. The hangings of the enclosure, the screens at the entrance of the gate of the enclosure that surrounds the tabernacle, the cords thereof, and the altar, and all their service equipment and all their accessories, and they shall perform the service. All the duties of the Gershonites, all their porterage, and all their service shall be performed on orders from Aaron and his sons. You shall make them responsible for attending to all their porterage. Those are the duties of the Gershonite clans for the tent of meeting. They shall attend to them under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest. Okay. The Gershonites are going to uh, have also their avodah as carrying. They're going to carry the cloths of the Mishkan, right? That's not a small job. The Mishkan is a very, very big tent. So carrying the cloths, the cup means they're covering and they're carrying the tent, like as it's folded up. So remember, it's different layers of skin and and cloth to to make the mishkan itself. So they're carrying the mishkan, right? The soft part of the mishkan. And those are the descendants of Moses' son. So they're Aaron's nephew's descendants. We don't know that actually. We're not told that this is... It seems that they are already a clan of their own, not Moshe's son's family. Right. Um, Amy, excuse me. Were clans always determined by lineage or by location? Lineage. Well, lineage is related to location. Right. You are patrilineal and patrilocal, or you are matrilineal and matrilocal. They They are always related. Right, you, you. If you go by the father's lineage, then the, then you live where the father's clan lives. And when you marry, you marry into the father or the mother, depending patrilineal or matrilineal. Yeah, it 
marriage, some, some folks are endogamous. They marry within the group. Others are not. If you're endogamous, then you marry within the clan. But if you're not, then in a matrilineal society, the husband comes to live with the wife's mother's family. So that is matrilineal and matrilocal. So they're, they're generally anthropologically linked in the ancient world. You didn't, you didn't just trace lineage. You went to live there with that clan. You identified with that clan, which meant you lived with them. The sociological and anthropological strings here are so interesting, too. Um, and this is, so this is definitely patrilineal and patrilocal. Right. Okay. So if you marry into the Gershonite clan, you live where the Gershonites live. And, and later it's tribe. Right? Later it's by tribe. If you marry into the tribe of Dan, you would move to live with wherever the tribe of Dan lives. They didn't live close to the sea. I'm sorry? They did not live close to the ocean. Who? These people. These are living in the desert. Yeah. And they're talking about dolphins. So probably it's not dolphin. This is not dolphin the flipper. This is not this is not flipper. So either this is a skin that they knew from Egypt. So it was some kind of water animal that they knew from Egypt because remember all of this comes with them from Egypt. They're not finding this stuff in the wilderness. Um, but probably dolphin skin actually uh, is nothing about a water animal. Most the, the the explanation I buy the most is that it has nothing to do with you know water animals or anything like that. Tahash is the word, and uh, there are some scholars that believe tahash is referring to a color, like a tan mustard color that a leather skin would have been dyed or, or treated in such a way that it, it became this color when it was, what do you do to a hide? Tan it. When you tan it or cure it, it comes out to be this color. That's probably what tahash is referring to as the color. I read on, on this subject that they, another scholar feels that it has a waterproof quality because it was at the top of the Mishkan. Not that I don't know how often it rains. <laughs> right. Well, it, makes, I mean, it would make sense that, that they would have some kind of yeah. waterproof yeah. covering yeah. over. And it doesn't have to be about raining in the desert, right? Whoever wrote this text is writing from what they're familiar with. They would have been writing in the land of Israel. And they use this waterproof layer in Israel on their tents. So when they retros, when they write what happened in the wilderness, um, they write what they know. They're writing about Tachash, right? So that's very possible that it's, you know, also, in addition to being this color, that it is, uh, thank you, waterproof. All right. Yes. Where is the wilderness on today's map? Between Egypt and the land of Israel. Do I have my map? Uh, so you you can look at a map that actually um, shows you the journey of the Israelites because they don't just make a straightforward journey, right? They go someplace, they go another place, they go another place, then they come back to the place that they were. The Jewish Journal has a map. Like the Jewish Journal. 
The Jewish Journal there has a map in this week's. Of the desert? Yeah. Well, so it's Okay. Here is a map that tracks the movements right from where they started and their entire wilderness trek all the way through the Midbar. We have two, two, two things there. Some people went this way. Or, no, they, they went and then they, and then they, yeah, it's, it's the whole book of numbers. If you, I'm looking at the JPS Torah commentary on page LVII. Uh, it says the route of the Israelites from Goshen to Kadesh, where they lived in, uh, Goshen in, uh, what's it called? Egypt, uh, to, Kadesh, where they're gonna, Kadesh Barnea, where they're gonna, um, set up camp in the Promised Land. So it's, it's essentially the Sinai Peninsula. Um, but again, they're, they're, it's circuit, like they're, it's circular. It's, they come back on themselves several times. They come back through, um, places. Well, they're not lost because God's telling them when to get, when to camp and when to move. Right? They, they're, they're not lost. They are, they're, they're not lost. They're waiting to die. They're in a holding pattern because they're not going in. So they're waiting for their young ones to be old enough to take the promised land. So they uh, they get told at some point that they will die in the desert. They get told after one particularly gnarly incident with God. God tells Moshe and presumably, yes, that Moshe tells the people. Uh, because there's a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and please, 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 we won't do it again. We're so sorry. But God has heard this a few times by that point And is like, done. God's done with this generation. And says they, they can't do it. They, they can't. They can't hack it. And they're not able to trust and they're not able to believe in me no matter what I do. And they keep challenging you, Moses, and me, and I'm done. This group can't do it. And so they're going to have to, they're going to die in the desert and their children are the ones who are going to go in and create the society that God had very much wanted for this group. All right, so we're going to look at the verse 22. Rita, how does how does counting get described in verse twenty two? Ah, that's Pakad is oh, notice. Sorry, sorry. Raise up the head. Raise up. So here Naso is to lift up. We talked about this a little bit at the end of last week that got cut off from the podcast for those of you listening at home. Uh, but we talked in here about uh, lifting up the head, right, as being both a thing of, about dignity, to count in a way that's about dignity and taking one's place and that everyone has a role and everyone has a job uh, to fulfill. And we talked about the fact that that is also a very vulnerable position, right, to lift, if you lift, allow someone to lift up your head, you're also exposing your neck, 
Uh, and so, you know, God seems to be very clear that it's we need to step forward and count, or else, like these people, we're going to die not having mattered. We still say keep your chin up. Keep your chin up. And stick your neck out. They're both true. Keep your chin up is a positive expression. Stick your neck out is about risk. And so both seem to be implied, uh, at least that's what I learned from uh, Aviva Zornberg this year in her book, Bewilderments, about the wilderness, right? She has a beautiful play on words, bewilderments, because this generation seems to be bewildered. Uh, and that's why they are going to die in the wilderness because they just stay kind of bewildered and can't get it together, right? To do what they're supposed to do and to take responsibility and to do all the things that would make them count as that generation, right? So, um, so God changes their role. Okay, you're you're not going to be that generation that builds the land of Israel. You're going to be the generation that parents, the generation that will. Isn't the word uh, part of the same root, Nasi, the president? <laughs> Funny you should go there, Rita. That's exactly where we're going to go. <laughs> so we're going to look, we're going to hold on to Rita's very insightful comment that Nasi, in our case, does not mean president. They didn't have such a thing. Uh, how fortunate were they? Nasi, they didn't have president. What did they have that we're going to see? Priests are Kohanim. Prophets are Nevi'im. Tribal leaders. In English, that's the correct English, but we would say prince. Nasi is a prince. Sorry, Judah, Judah, uh, Judah. Judah Hanasi, Judah the prince. So it means, pr- prince for us means son of the king. That's not what prince means as when we say Nasi. It means a leader. It means, uh, sometimes it means something like a dignitary, uh, but somebody with status in the, in the tribe or in the people. And so we're going to see each Nasi of each tribe is going to bring a gift in the end of this parsha. So it's very good, Rita. Pay attention to, we're going to pay attention to all the ways we see Nun, Sin, Aleph appear in our in our text. Okay, so let's look at 29. Oh wait, so Gershon is going to do what? What is Gershon's job? Carry off the, the, the tent. Verse 24. Zot, Zot Avodat Mishpechot hagershuni. This is the avodah, the service of the families of the Gershonites, the Gershonite families. La avod to serve. Ul masa. Ul masa. Now, if you're not terribly familiar with Hebrew, that wouldn't even look anything like our verb. But guess what? It is. Their job is lavod ulamasa and to carry, to lift. It is the same word. So in our case, this is porterage, but it is from the same shoresh. You start to see what Torah is doing here. So how do you? How do they count? 
you raise up their head because each has a tafkid, each has a role, right, to play. Here's their job. Their job is to do avo avo al and masa and lifting up. So their work in lifting is their dignity, is their being dignified and lifted up, right? Not how we tend to think of work, always, right? When we think of lifting and schlepping, that's the lower. It's the lower caste, right? The lower class of work. Then, but when you look at Torah, Torah is very clear. That you ain't got no mishkan if you ain't got somebody to carry it <laughs> and set it up. So porterage was sacred work. Well, the very nature of a mishkan is that it is portable. It's not. I mean, so if it's not carried, it doesn't do its job. If it does, if it's not carried, it doesn't exist when they get there at the next place, <laughs> right? So, um, so very clearly sacred work of lifting and carrying. In in verse. 23, what is the Hebrew that gets rendered in the red book as record? Record them. You will count them. This pakad word. So it's a, it's a counting. So it's, so they, it's not, so the, the ones who are being recorded are, they're the ones who are between 30 and 50. Yes. Although every, all of the Gershonites are counted. No, here only the ones between thirty and fifty are counted. Those are the ones who are counted. Okay. Your 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 red book is saying record. Think pakad. Okay. They're being pakaded. The green book as well. Pakad. So far be it for me to argue with the scholars who translate it. I'm sure one of the senses of pakad could be to record, but for our purposes, I want us to stay with this idea of pakad with all of its sure. permutations of being noticed, of right mattering, of um, being taken note of, right? Uh, okay, so so 30 to 50 because that is the those are the ones that will be active. Those are the those are the ones who are going to be rotating, right, in to do the. And presumably the ones, since for the other tribes, uh, you could be, you'd be part of the army if you were 20. Yes. So presumably for the Gershonites, those Gershonites between 20 and 30 would be like in training because they're not going to be in the army. Right. Right. They're not going to fight and they're not yet ready to serve. But I find it interesting that given, given what we know of people's general Health and well-being that that biblically they w- record it from thirty to fifty. Thirty's old. These are the old guys. These are the old guys, right? And uh, so it's interesting to me that it's thirty. What are the twenty-year-olds? Right. What are the fifteen-year-olds doing? Right. The ones who can really carry and slap and whatever. And but I think, and this is I haven't done any research into it at all. Um, but there's a part of me that wants to say Torah understands that this is really important work, really sacred and important work, and then until you're 30, right. you, don't you don't have a sense of, I mean, we saw what happened with Nadav and Avihu, right, right? that they got excited, because yeah. maybe they were young, like, we don't know, but like, they, 
novices and they got carried away and you know it seems that there's an understanding that by this biblical you know society that that wrote this that that, that until 30 you don't really know from what it means that something's important or sacred understand. or you don't understand you don't have the context you don't have the life experience you, Did you, you had your hand up no, I was just, uh, you, you got to the point, I was just wondering, wait a minute, how about, does that mean Nabob and, and Bihu were 30? Because they were on duty. Um, we're not, so, yeah, we're not sure what their age, we're not sure what the age was for Aaron's sons, and I'm not, sh- I'm not clear, I'd have to go back and look at the text carefully, I'm not clear that they were on duty. It just says they took their fire pans, right, and put that they could have been in training, and they're they're seventeen, right, and they're like, well, if it's good when God orders it, how much better for us to do one at midnight, you know, when God didn't ask for us. So I'm not clear, but possibly they were. If they were on duty, maybe they have to be thirty. I don't know if your kohanim is it special, you know, if you're doing the priestly duty, is it also thirty? You can't be president until you're 35, mm-hmm. and that certainly doesn't guarantee wisdom, as we know. As we know. <laughs> but there is that age requirement. For some reason, that 30 mark seems to be significant. Well, yes. It's interesting. It's, it's almost as if they intuited what we now think of as, you know, development, full development of the brain. Right. Things like that. Right. Right. I mean, for, you know, for... Uh, for males, it's like around 25-ish. And, oh, you know, for females, you know, <laughs> Lynn says it's longer than 25. Right? Right. It's interesting to me that there does seem to be this awareness that, right, that, that things aren't quite done. You're not quite fully baked, right, until 30. Um, and in a time where the life expectancy was shorter, you know, and your health would be compromised sooner. Right. Um, what was life expectancy? Any idea? Um, it, it depends how you how you rate it. So if what people tend to do is say, "Here's the average," and they so they live to forty five or fifty. But that's because they're factoring in the infants and children that die and the 85-year-olds that die, and you come up with an median age or whatever it is. Um, this guy over here, this brilliant guy, Richard, will have to tell us what the actual word is. Life expectancy. Median. Yeah, usually when they talk about life expectancy, it's, a, it's, a, it's from birth, and so it would, it would essentially be uh, you know, at, what, at what age... What age would you expect to get people to? So it's sort of like a, like a weighted average. Right, right. So the lower it is, it means the more deaths you have. Or and young, right? Ours is approaching 80, which means that the probability that you could, you will, you'll still, you could still survive for many years beyond 80 doesn't mean that you drop dead. Thank goodness. Right, right. Um, so that so it depends how you do it. If you look, if you look at averaging it, then it's like. 45 or 50 but that's but if you survived early illness as a, a, if you survived infancy then you survived past five years old the st- same as in the developing world today if you survive past five years old you have a very good chance of surviving into adulthood but then you t- take into factor war um, which was common uh, as well as being killed you know hunting or you're doing the other technologies that you're involved with to survive uh, then that kills off a certain amount of, you know, late adolescent, early adult people. But if you survive all that, 
right, um, and a plague or two, right, then your chances of living to 80 were pretty good. Like, you're, there's, there's no reason you shouldn't live to 70, 80, um, because we see that in the Psalms. 50 would definitely be an elder. Yes, um, because people, folks didn't live to ninety and a hundred, and you know, generally, and even their late eighties probably, because the nutrition wasn't as good, and you know, there wasn't right. medical, you know, interventions, immunizations, medical interventions that allowed people to live. Um, if you can't get around because you're so crippled with arthritis, right? You stop moving, you die quicker, right? If you have intervention, as just one example, if you have intervention that allows you to to move even if you have arthritis, right, your life expectancy is longer, right, greater. So um, so that was a very long-winded explanation. So when people say, oh, in the ancient world, they only lived to like 40, I'm like, that's not true. Often, yes, because of things that intervene to compromise people's lives. But in general, if you were lucky enough to survive s- stuff... The picture we're getting of what the society was really like and the... the interweaving of the different parts of society is so rich. Very rich. Mm-hmm. Right, because we tend to just read we read over. We don't tend to to write that's why we that's why we come here. Job security. Twenty nine. Yes. As for the Merorites, you should record them by the clans of their ancestral house. You should record them from the age of thirty up to the age of fifty. All who are subject to service in the performance of the duties for the tent of meeting. These are the porterage tasks in connection with their various duties for the tent of meeting. The planks, the bars, the posts, and the sockets of the tabernacle. The posts around the enclosure and their sockets, pegs, and cords. All these furnishings and their service. You shall list by name the objects that are their porterage tasks. Those are the duties of the Merorite clans pertaining to their various duties in the tent of meeting under the direction of Ithamar, Son of Aaron the priest. Okay. One of the surviving sons of Aaron. Elazar and Itamar are the two surviving sons of Aaron after Nadav and Avihu, right? He had four, and now he has two. So this is the Merite clan. So what are they going to do? They are going to have the same 30 to 50 age for service. Their porterage tasks are to carry the planks, the bars, the posts, and the sockets. Uh, so, so the Gershonites are carrying the soft part of the Mishkan. The Merorites are carrying the hard parts of the Mishkan. The, the, the one, the skeleton of the Mishkan. And then the Gershonites have what goes over the skeleton. The, the, they're carrying the hardware. Gershon is carrying the soft stuff, software. <laughs> and, and we have another clan that's gonna carry all the furniture. Right? All the utensils and all the stuff. Right. So again, uh, we get to Richard's point, we get Chief Kodotam, Pakadam, right? That same Shoresh uh, for them at verse 29. Yes? Okay, so we've got this idea that they have a tafkid, they have a role. Okay. Then we're going to get the totals of what that looks like on your next page. And then we're going to get a bunch of stuff that we're not going to read. Because I don't want to. Because I want you to turn to chapter 6, verse 22. We're still in Parshat Naso. 
They, they already started to sniff me out. <laughs> They're already used to how this goes. All right, Robert, read for us. I, the Lord, spoke to Moses. Speak to Aaron and his sons. Thus you bless the people of Israel, say to them, Adonai bless you and protect you. Adonai deal kindly and graciously with you. Adonai bestow favor upon you and grant you peace. Okay, this is the priestly blessing. Why did I take us here? All right, other than Fiddler on the Roof, Laura? <laughs> that was a lovely rendition. Um, why did I bring us here? To show us our connection to the words of Torah even today. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, to show us our connection to words of Torah even today, for sure. Why do we need our rabbi? Why do we need our rabbi? Shavuot was this week, and the, certainly in a traditional setting, Kohanim would have blessed this week on Wednesday, would have blessed us with this blessing. But Rita, tell me the Hebrew connection, why I took us here. Look at verse 26. It's got to be part of the root word. Yes. It's what? 26. Come on, y'all. Oh, Yisah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yisah. Yisah Adonai Panav Elecha. What does that mean? May God... Make you princes. <laughs> may God make you princes. I love this group. Um, may God lift up God's face toward you. Notice you. Okay, so what does it mean, right? If we if God, what does that mean? May God lift up God's countenance, Elecha, to you. If you're doing your job. You will be blessed for doing your job. Well, what's doing your job have to do with lifting up? The mishkan, moving the mishkan. But God is lifting up God's face. May he notice you. Hmm? May, he notice? May God notice you. Okay, we have God noticing in ways that are not very good. Right? God can notice in ways that are really not good. Right? Yes. So that you're noticing God. May God lift up God's face. It's may God lift up God's face toward you. Because you're listening to what God's telling you to do. Okay. Uh, if God turns his face away from you, that's bad. Okay. So, hester panim. That is how the rabbis talk about evil in the world. How can there be evil if there is God? Hester panim. Because God hides God's face. And when God hides God's face, terrible, terrible things happen. We're talking, this is the language they used with the Holocaust. Hester panim. The people that retain faith said... How do you, so how could this happen? If there's a God, how could any of this happen? For reasons we don't know, there was an experience of Hester Panim. God, the God hid God's face, and that means utter and complete, right? Horribleness happens. So, so we have this idea of face, God's face, when it's hidden, very, very bad. If God's face is not lifted up toward you, where is it? 
Either t- but turn to then why doesn't say may God turn God's face toward you? I get it that it's a metaphor, but let's go with the metaphor. If God's face is not lifted up towards you, where is it? Yeah. Looking down. If God's face, so what this seems to be saying is when we, it's not even about doing something. We don't do anything to earn this. This is a bracha. This is a blessing. May God's face be lifted up towards you. So you're up there in heaven. God forbid. God forbid. So can it not be interpreted for God to lift his face toward you? Is that you can see God. If you chop wood, carry water, you can okay. therefore see God because you are doing your work. So let, no, it doesn't say that. Okay. Just good. Could it mean that? Of course. So, so I, I said, let us stay with the metaphor for a minute. We'll, then we'll go to what it means. But stay with the metaphor, because I think it's important. If God's lifting up God's face towards you, where was it before? It was down. I think this means we have the capacity to affect the divine. That is a radical statement. Yes? If we, if our existence causes God's face to be lifted up. That is significant to me. How how do we make that? It does not say that. It is saying this as a bracha, as a blessing. blessing in spite of it all. As in spite of it all. But isn't this petitioner prayer, I mean, either Moses or the individual saying, God, don't hide your face from me. Sure. Yes, so so both are true. So yes, whenever we offer blessing, it's a petitionary prayer. Always. May God bless you and protect you is absolutely petitionary prayer. 100%. So it's not just a gratuitous act by God. This is us asking God. Well, now we're going to Laura's point. So yes, it's petitionary. It originates with God. It originates because it says here, Daber el Aharon ve'el Banav. God says, tell Aharon and his sons, thus shall you bless the people Israel. Say to them, quote, may God bless it. God wants, God commands that Aharon and later others, um, that Aharon Bless the people with this. God wants this to happen. So it's a reminder. God wants that God's face should be lifted up towards the people of Israel, or towards each of us, if we're doing a blessing for one person. Right? That God wants this. God has the power. Now we have to, in some way, make sure that He uses His power to. So it's interesting. I'm not sure. Everyone wants to go to us behaving in a certain way so that this happens. I, I'm not I'm not arguing. I, try, I truly am not trying to just be argumentative. I, well, um, I know. Is it a petition but, to say? But hang on, hang on. So the, the reason I'm digging in is because I think part of the point of a blessing, part of the idea of grace is that it is unearned. It is a blessing that is given freely. It is granted freely. Do we have to do all the porterage and the schlepping? Of course. I'm not sure how that relates 
to this bracha. And I know we go there, and even my 13-year-olds, when I study this Parsha with them, right, because it's one of the few things I can actually access with them is the priestly benediction. Um, and I say to them, what does that mean? May God lift up God's face towards you. What does that mean? And they say things like, may God notice you because you're doing good. You're doing good fit. Okay, that's great that that's how they understand, right, this. But I'm not sure... It's implied here that we do anything. It is. It's a blessing. But by its location, after all of these, this is what this clan does. This is what they have to do. This is what they have to do. And then it doesn't say, and therefore, but it is implied by its position coming right after all of the jobs. Well, one could argue that. I just did. <laughs> <laughs> One could also argue, okay, now we're done with all the work and we're done with what all the people do. Now we're going to talk about what God does. What God does is say, bless them with this stuff about me. Because that's what I want. That, that's Isn't that implied? my job. The work is done and now you say, God bless me for what? I, I'm arguing no. I'm arguing it's free. I'm arguing it's free. Yeah. That God is saying that here's y'all's work, that's great. You do the Mishkan, then I have a job too. God has a job too. Tell Aaron to bless the people that my face should shine on them, that my face should be lifted up towards them, that I should bless them and keep them. That's that's my job. Right, says God. I don't see it as a promise, any promise that God's going to do that. He's just saying, tell Aaron. To bless them. Yes, to bless them. Yes. These words. So that's it. I'm not hearing God say, and then once that happens, I will bless them. Right, but presumably, if God is saying, bless them, that I should have my face lifted up towards them, presumably, that's what God wants to do is lift up God's face toward them it's not like bless them and then I don't care bless them about me and then yeah maybe bless because they did the work I, I'm not I'm not ready to concede that I'm not ready to concede that this is hilarious y'all are really attached to this this is very interesting I'm like wow y'all are real because and I'll tell you why I don't like it I don't like it hitched together because then what, what we earn cancer I, I'm not willing to attach these things. I'm not willing to say, if we do our porterage, then we get blessed. It does not say that. It says, here's y'all's job. Do it or don't do it. You still get the priestly blessing. Whether you do your work or not, they are still going to bless the people. On Shavuot, you're still going to get the blessing whether you did well today or not. It is still our right. It is still our birthright to receive this bracha as a gift. God gives it as a gift. I see that as an interpretation of what you're saying. Because it comes all after all the things that there's... And that's an interpretation on your part. Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Robert. Let's settle this outside. This strikes me as one example of something we have seen a few times, and that is, or we tried to read into what we're seeing, that, gee, God needs the people as much as the people needs God. It doesn't pop up very often, Lovely. but this, this is sort of an example of that. And, and why, because God doesn't need a Mishkan, right? right. But God, 
God wants to, God, but God wants to give the people a way to be close to God, right? And God wants to be close to the people. I think there is some sense of God needs us. God needs the people, exactly. Well, the sentence after the blessing it mm-hmm. says, um, you know, you've, I guess we've talked about all the junk that they have to do, the daily minutiae, but then, but just don't forget, we're linked with God. You know, get into more of the spiritual part. Mm-hmm. It's not... It's not linked because they've done something. It's because part of life is doing stuff, but you also have a spiritual part. Yes. I think that this whole thing with with, uh, our apparent attachment to we do good things and then God shows his face to us, I think that's the Christian part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Which part? The thing that you're fighting, the thing where you're saying that this is free, it has nothing to do with you do a good job and then God will be good. This is all the Protestant work ethic and the, the whole you know, Calvinist early Protestant thing is that if you do your job, you are of the elect. Yes. And, and, you, deserve, and you deserve yes. you deserve what God Yes, does. that is what I'm that's reacting not, against. That's not, yes. that's, not a, that's not a Jewish worldview. That's kind of like a Protestant Christian worldview. Okay? And particularly the opposite of that. And if, right. you and if you don't, then you are damned. And certainly we have, y'all need to behave, and then things will go well for you. And if you don't behave in godly ways... We get lots of descriptions about how horrible it's going to be, right? Um, but but that is exclusive of God's bestowing upon us things like this, right? This that's blessing that is not consequential. Right. It's not a consequence of something else. And even within, and even within the sort of the Christian side of the, the, the thing, you, you continue. You have this tension between the Protestants who say, you know, you need to do your job in order for God to treat you well, and as opposed to say the Catholics who would argue that God's grace is there for you whether you're doing these things or not. Right. And we have both. Right. Exactly. We are a both and uh, tradition in that sense. I have a question about the verb tense in this blessing. Oh, yeah? Meaning, like, is it... It's You shall bless the people, say to them, the eternal bless you. Is it the eternal will bless you or may? There is no difference in Hebrew. So that's a difference between whether it could be read as a petitionary or it could be read as a fact. This will happen or ask for it to happen. So it, I think that... In English, we make a distinction between those things. Hebrew doesn't. So, God bless you and keep you is petitionary. It's not right. a it, statement of fact. This is what God is promising. He's I think in Hebrew, there's more of both. It's wrapped up together. It's wrapped up together. We distinguish those. Either it's a promise mm-hmm. or may God do it as a wish, mm-hmm. right? And and when we see this in other places where Rashi and some other scholars or the Sfatimet plays with that and says, like, the fire on the altar shall never go out. Mm-hmm. What, is that a promise? Or is that don't let it go out, right? And and the Sfatimet wants to read it and does read it as a promise. That God is not saying don't let the fire on the altar ever go out. God is saying the fire on the altar will never go out. Because there, there's no distinction in Hebrew. And so you can easily flip it either way. And it reads, you can read it as a promise. This will happen. God will bless you. Or you can read it as... May God God bless you. But in either case, God is ordering that the priest 
say that mm-hmm. right to the to the Israelites. Okay, so I totally flipped my thinking that you don't have to work oh, to get the blessing. Oh, okay. I totally understand, and regardless of where it is written, that mm-hmm. it is written after we talk about the work, it, it doesn't say, and those of you that did the work, correct, you shall bless only those that did the work. So I totally have flipped and totally see your point. This blessing goes to everyone. It goes to the people of Israel, not the Merarites and the Gershonites and the right. whoever just slept. It doesn't matter that it's written. After. And I think the, the, its placement after all of this business about working for the Mishkan is because this is the point of the Mishkan. Like Rita said, there's the, there's the schlepping and the doing and the hauling. Yes, but let's not forget the point of the Mishkan is so that Aharon can serve to bring the divine and the Israelites closer together. That's the point of the Mishkan. And not just to have a nice tent that we put up, right, that's very fancy and lovely at the center of everything. George is not convinced by any of this. No, I want to say you're both right. Because of it is the dignity of the work. This is work has its own dignity, yes. and so do all the people have its own. Dignity. Yes. So it is a combination of Beautiful, George. The peacemaker, beautifully done. Um, so we can go on. So we can move on, says George. Can we please move on? George. George. <laughs> there you go. All right. So rather than going on, we're going to go deeper into this. This is the beginning of the dignity of work that many politicians say. Well, we get that in Genesis. Right? Once they leave Eden, God says, by the sweat of your brow shall you earn a living. Right? So you'll eat because from now on you will work to eat. And Eve will bring forth children in great pain. Right, and travail. Are are we to read from your position that we're chosen and therefore it is our right to expect God's blessing? Yes. Freely given? Yes. And if we weren't chosen, this wouldn't be? According to the biblical worldview, correct. That we were chosen for this. And, And I would say, in redefining that word chosen, I would say, this is the way we were chosen to receive God's blessing. Other peoples are chosen in their way to receive God's blessing. It is our birthright. Correct. I think 100%. And by the way, I didn't mean to... I wasn't pushing that point from the beginning. I just got a, a different interpretation that I was like, whoa. So, um, yeah, so like, I, I, that actually didn't... It wasn't on my agenda to talk about was it earned or not so um which is all, which is why I love Torah study who knew that I had such a strong opinion about whether or not it was earned I was not aware of that till this morning all right so we're going to look at page four <laughs> yeah, you're welcome says Laura there you go all right so given that the Torah says that no human being can see God's face and live we just had somebody bring this up it seems odd to pray that God's face be lifted up towards another human being But perhaps we might understand God's face here metaphorically as representing the deepest and most intimate aspect of the mystery. Perhaps to pray that God's face be lifted towards another person is to express one's desire that the recipient, him or herself, grow in the capacity to bear or be born. What is she doing with our root? She's giving it a passive as well as an active. Which, which... Which word? Be born. Oh, in 
Hebrew? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, no, I mean, what is what is she doing? She's she's right. She's she's playing with Gisa being part of Masa. The work is Masa, porterage, lifting up, bearing, and so she's saying. So wow. So she's saying maybe. God lifting up God's face towards us is about us growing in our capacity to masa, to carry, to bear, or to be born, to be carried. That's beautiful. That really getting closer to the mystery, capital M, is not just a lovely, fluffy, candy business. Really getting closer to the mystery, capital M, is messy, capital M. When you get really close to the mystery, it's about our capacity to bear what must be born and remain fill in the blank, right? Or to bear and understand that as part of reality, capital R, as Rami Shapiro would talk about it, right? Once, once we come to know the mystery more intimately, it now includes things like death. Miscarriage, tragedy, accidents, illness, decline right? of the people we love, of ourselves. When we really come more intimately close to the mystery, it, I love her way of talking about masa. It's about us growing in our capacity to bear and sometimes to be born with an E at the end. Absolutely. She says, this interpretation finds support in Parshat Breshit, the Torah's opening portion, when God favors Abel's offering over his brother Cain's, as a result of which Cain becomes angry and his face, quote, falls. Strikingly, God's response to Cain's despair is an invitation to lift, employing the same root which permeates Parshat Naso. God says to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face fallen? Right? Naflu fanecha. Your faces have fallen. Face is plural in Hebrew. If you do right, if you do good, it says the Hebrew, tetiv, if you do good, shall there not be se'et? Right? A, a lifting. A lifting. And if you do not do right, wrongdoing couches at the door. Its desire is towards you, but you can overcome it. That's a whole thing that the rabbis try to figure out what the heck that means we're not going there um, but this idea that if you if you do well if you do good if you do right isn't there a lifting right and it just talked about his face is falling so possibly this is talking about a lifting of the face because he does right oh don't even go there Laura Diamond <laughs> because he does right um, if you do right shall there not be uplift from the perspective of mindfulness and midot practice, midot, remember, our spiritual characteristics, we might understand this enigmatic passage as teaching that like, when, like Cain, we find ourselves in a state of pain, fear, and anger, we have the capacity to discern a divine impulse to bear and carry that reality, to lift up challenging emotions, clearing a path by which we, quote, might do the right thing. So it's really about attitude, not an actual doing. It's really about an attitude of, of lifting up, Laura. <laughs> in mindfulness practice, we acknowledge and allow ourselves to enter fully into challenging emotional states rather than fighting them. 
We seek to release judgments about these naturally occurring reactions and allow them to pass rather than talking ourselves out of them. We call to mind and apply the midah of sablanut, which, as we have previously noted, derives from a Hebrew root connoting to bear, lisbul, as in bearing weight or burden. In other words, we notice the weight we are carrying and become more aware of our innate capacity to tolerate it, to carry or bear it. And if we realize we need help in doing so, we remember that we can seek additional support from others. We're going to go down to this story from the Talmud. Uh, Rabbi Elazar and Rabbi Yochanan in Tractate Brachot. Rabbi Elazar fell seriously ill and was visited by Rabbi Yochanan. During the visit, Yochanan notices that Elazar is lying in a dark room. He lets in some more light, as a result of which he notices that Eliezer is crying. And the following dialogue ensues from Yochanan. Why do you weep, Elazar? I am weeping because of this beauty that is going to rot in the earth. Yochanan, on that account, you surely have a reason to weep. And they both wept. Yochanan, are your sufferings welcome to you? Elazar, neither my sufferings nor their reward are welcome. Yochanan, give me your hand. Elazar offered his hand. Yochanan took it and lifted him. By cultivating savlanut, by listening empathically, withholding judgment, resisting the temptation to rationalize, and simply offering his loving presence and his hand, Rabbi Yochanan lifts up Rabbi Elazar just as the Levites lift up the Mishkan, just as God lifts the divine face to the recipient of the priestly blessing. That just tied it all together. Oh my. <laughs> does, that mean, does that mean that we can flip it the other way, that when you are counting people, when you're lifting them up, you're preparing them for the Messiah? But yes. Right? Yes. It's not just the Messiah that causes the lifting up. It's the lifting up that causes the Messiah. Yes. I would definitely say it's reciprocal. Right? That it's a right. whatever you and your mathematics would call a a circle. <laughs> <laughs> circle was not what I was looking for, but when one thing keeps causing another thing which causes the same thing which causes the feedback loop right some kind of feedback loop that, that yes they are all they are all circle very funny they are all like they they reinforce one another they cause one another and which one starts first chicken egg right You know, possibly that we are, we realize how much we carry and how much everybody else carries and maybe we're a little more gentle about, more accepting, more gentle about judging and, right? Thinking we're all that. I noticed that the word, uh, uh, face doesn't appear in the English translation of Good, careful reading, Ruben, as always. Very interesting, right? Why? The English of your translation jumps to the interpretation and leaves the metaphor. It jumps right to what that metaphor means. And you know how I love that, uh, right? Rather than staying with the metaphor and let people get to what it might or might not mean. Because the minute you interpret it, 
right? The minute you the minute you translate it away from the metaphor, you've interpreted it for the people who are reading it in the English, which I think is a mistake. I think people should be able to discern for themselves what does God lifting up God's face towards one mean. Is that the case in, uh, in, in the Red Book as well? Yes, it, and it's even in my book. The Lord bless you and protect you. The Lord deal kindly and graciously with you. The Lord bestow his favor upon you and grant you peace. I also want to know how we acquire God's blessing now that there are no priests. Well, right. If we go back to the interpretation that some of us were arguing for, um, it's that it, it doesn't require, right? This is, a, this is standing all the time, is that it doesn't require the technology of the Mishkan Right, and now we use this bracha. We are the ones who bestow this bracha on each other. Right, we bestow it on our children at the Friday night table. Right, that was the rabbis who instituted that. That we now fulfill the priestly role. Right, our table is supposed to be an altar, and that we serve at that altar and we bless our children um, with with this bracha. I don't think of most of our prayers as asking for things. Most of the prayers that I've observed are praise and gratitude and petitionary prayers are somewhat rare in our in our tradition I think and, and to have so much time devoted in our thinking to this prayer is very significant there's there's no prayer in the Torah that's why petitionary or otherwise he turned it into prayer there's no there's no liturgy in the Bible but you go to the rabbis right. there is our door is mostly petitionary prayers oh mostly our Misha Barach is a petitionary prayer. Shema, Shema, you know, but well, that, well, that's more of a statement, right? Right? Um, but what we, we do, pray for rain. We pray for rain. We pray for rain. There's a lot of gratitude and a lot of petitionary prayer. Yeah. And the I think it's no accident. That we are the people who invented social work. Because? Because we've taken someone else's hand when they're in trouble with them both. And uh, we were the first social work agencies in this country. But it's as early as Talmud, right? That, that it's understood that I don't need to make it better for you. I need to... Be here with you. Hold your hand. Share it with you, right? And give you what I can of what I have to offer in that. Because you're down and I'm not, right? But it isn't that I say, oh, it's not so bad, right? It'll all get better. He's saying, what is Yochanan saying? Why is he sad? He says, because I'm going to die. He's aware that he's going to die, whether it's now or 40 years from now, that that this beauty is going to rot in the earth, most of us rush to go, don't be silly, poo, poo, poo. I may have asked him, you're going to live to 120, right? And that is not the teaching here, right? The teaching is not, you're going to be okay. The teaching is, yeah, that is something to weep about, for sure, that you're going to die. For sure, that is something to weep about, and let me share that yeah, with it's, you. It's to be with the person 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, and that goes for everything, not just illness, right? It also goes to, I think what I hear you saying is somebody who's poor, someone who's homeless, someone who's hungry, someone, right, who doesn't have access to the educational system or to an apartment, uh, because no one will rent to them, right, Blanche? So that, um, all of those things rather than, you know, I'm gonna show you how to do it, right, is let me be with you in what's, what's your experience, what's actually happening with you. I think you're right. It's very, very Jewish. I'm going to play George for a minute. Please do. Uh, Bernie Madoff is is one of us. He's a Jew. Bernie Madoff asked for a priestly vesting, would that be proper in your view? Is it just because he's Jewish, he's one of us, he's a chosen? Is he entitled to the blessing? Yes. If If Bernie Madoff goes to synagogue and it's time for the priestly blessing, absolutely, he's entitled. Doesn't that seem odd? If it's unearned, no. For the all, y'all who think it's earned, sure. Yeah, but 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 if this is a gift that we're given, everyone gets it. There's plenty of places God says, if you behave in godly ways, it's going to go good for you. And if you don't, it's not going to go good for you, right? There's plenty of places that there's a distinction between how we behave and that that, that has consequences. But we also see in this world that that's not the case. It doesn't always work out that the good people have it good and the bad people get punished. That is not the reality that we live in. But in terms of this bracha, this is a gift. I think it also, uh, I think part of the problem also is that we are interpreting what it even means to get a blessing from God. Yes. Getting the blessing from God doesn't mean that whatever your daily burdens are get somehow lifted off your shoulders. Right. Right. It's right. basically, yes, you're still, you know, I still value you if I can get the point of the more voice. And and it's always aspirational, right? Um, hopefully anyway. Um, it's aspirational. But people could lose that you can follow the story of how he was called to the best of Nazi and the Nazi Okay, we'll go go read the book, and then then we'll know. Uh, the next thing that happens uh, in Parshat Naso, we're going to close, uh, is uh, the Nasi of each right. The chieftain of each tribe is going to bring a dedication offering for the altar. Yes. Look at verse ten. The chieftains were presenting their offerings before the altar. God said to Moses, let them present their offerings for the dedication of the altar. One chieftain each day. The one who presented his offering on the first day was Nachshon ben Aminadav of the tribe of Judah. And then we get listed the second day, the third day, the fourth day. Right? And it goes on and on and on and on and on. Do you see? On and on and on and on and on. So each nasi... It's the same formula for each Nasi that comes forward to offer uh, their gift. You, of course, understand why the rabbis have Nachshon ben Aminadav being the first to offer his offering, yeah? Why does Nachshon ben Aminadav get that right? Indeed, he's the one that the rabbis have in the Midrash stepping into the sea when nobody would, would do it. This is that Nachshon. So they wrote that. 
they wrote that midrash about this Nachshon. We, we tend to think the, uh, we tend to think the other Nachshon came first. And then we're like, oh, there he is again. The guy who jumped into the sea, he's here. No. This was here, and then the rabbis wrote this beautiful midrash about this guy, Merit, going first, cause when we were at the sea, and then there's this whole lovely story, yeah? So, uh, one, uh, author, uh, wrote a piece, Harav Yitzchak Ginsburg, wrote a piece on paradox in Parshat Naso. That this, Parsha is all about paradox, which, Richard, you should love. Because paradox is so beyond our normal way of thinking, acquiring the ability to sustain this most important ingredient in life is profoundly difficult. Obviously, it cannot be acquired through logical inquiry. This is where Parshat Naso comes in. The order in which the meanings of Naso appear in the Parsha provide us with a practical guide for developing our ability to sustain paradox. And you thought it was just about where we stopped. The first step is to be willing to be raised or elevated like the Gershonites. In the context of our lives, this translates into awareness that God has given, given each of us a role to play and a purpose. Life has meaning in the sense of purpose. And we must begin our journey with readiness to find and embrace the mission we've been given in life. The image for this step is raising our heads, raising our outlook on life. The second step requires that like the priests, we strive to lift our hands, symbolizing our actions, so that they can act as a conduit for God's divine energy. This stage redefines us as a source of blessing for the world. By doing so, we are able to both forgive ourselves and others, taking ultimate responsibility for our transgressions, while thereby, paradoxically, transforming them too into sources of blessing. This is the highest form of tshuva, of returning to God. Finally, by connecting with the inner essence of each of the tribes of Israel, we, re- we merit manifesting our own princeliness, the divine spark within us. So maybe. Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.